I mentioned in the first sermon of this series that there are people that I don't believe will ever become Christians. They will never find the grace of God. And I wouldn't normally vocalize this. It even feels funny vocalizing it in a, in a sermon. Uh, but if you, as I said before, were to listen to my prayers, if you could see into my thoughts, if you could, could kind of get into my heart and, and really uh, see what was there, then you would discover that I probably consider these people a lost cause. I, I don't think certain people sometimes certain types of people will ever be Christians. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this. And uh, I know that I'm not alone in this, partly because uh, there are these packets. And in these packets, our annual packets, it has our goals for the year and it has some devotionals and it has our activities and our sermon schedules. And you can pick one up in the back. But there's a spot to list 10 people that you are going to, that you are committing to praying for and to interacting with and engaging with and uh, sharing the story of Jesus with if the opportunity comes up in hopes that they will become a Christian, somebody that loves Jesus and that follows Jesus. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day, this packet in our church And I was telling them that I haven't filled it out yet. I've been prayerfully considering who God wants me to put there. And uh, there's more than 10 people in the world that need Jesus. I could easily come up with a list. Uh, But I want the 10 people that God in this next year really wants me to focus on engaging and sharing the story of Jesus with and praying about. I can't have an infinite list. And so I've been really trying to ask God who he wants me to. To put there, and the person I was talking to said, You know, it would be easy for me to find 30 people to put on that list. That would be simple. But I'm trying to narrow it down to 10 people that are realistic. And that's the word right there that shows me that I'm not alone in thinking there are certain types of people, maybe different levels of goodness and badness in our heads where we kind of draw a line and say, I'm not really sure that that person is a realistic goal, that that person I should even share Jesus with because they're just going to reject it. They're never going to accept it. And you put things in there like they're too democratic in their politics or they're too wealthy or they're too poor, or they're too homeless, or they're too famous, or they're too addicted, or they're too mean, or they're too strong in their belief systems. They have their heads stuck in the sand. And we as Christians, on the Christian side of things, we go, man, they're too whatever to know the grace that I know, to accept the Jesus that I have accepted. And so when it comes to making a list of 10, we go, well, they're not gonna go on there and I'm not even gonna try with them. And maybe that person, they kind of feel like a Christian already. And so that's the type of person that we put down on our list. Now, if you're not a Christian, this sermon has not been directed at you so far at all, but you, you probably somewhere inside of you have in part rejected Christianity because you think that you're to something. Now you would not label it like we as Christians label it and you would probably be more accurate than us because you know yourself better but you might say things like this, I'm too cool, 
Like, I, I mean, you look at those Christians and eh, look at the movies they make. I mean, come on. Like, I'm too cool for that. And I'm too involved with these people and they reject Christianity. And, and so there's no way I'm, I'm accepting the Christian thing because these people are too irreligious and these are the people I'm close to. So I'm just too close to them. I'm too smart for that religion. I mean, I got the scientific answers and there's this weird idea out there that, that, that Christians just are kind of Christians because they've stuck their head in the sands and, and we're not smart at all. And, uh, and that, that means there's a lot of stupid people because almost everybody in the world believes in God. Uh, but the atheist would have us believe that, that we're stupid. And so you might go, I'm just too smart for that Christian thing. I'm too young. I'll get to it when I'm older. I'll accept it later. That's something for my grandparents. That's something for my parents. That's something for the older generation. It's kind of gone out of style. I'm too young for that. I'm too rich. Those people want my money. I'm too bad. I've done too many bad things. I mean, if, if they knew what I've done, then there's no way I could be a part of that. I can't, I can't become a Christian because I, I've done too many bad things, and eventually that'll come out, and, and people will know that I'm too bad, and I won't be able to be part of the church. I'm too old. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm set in my ways, and I've done the same thing for years and years and years. I'm too focused on my career. I'm too busy. And so we put these twos in front of things. We say that people are two or that I am two if you're not a Christian. And what I want to look at today, the story of Jonah continuing in that, but I want to look at this group of people that is just too everything to be engulfed by the grace of God. I mean, they are the, the, least, the least likely people to accept the grace of God, really to believe God. I mean, if, you're, if we're talking like, who should I put on my list? There's about 200,000 people in this city that we're going to look at today that should not be on your list at all. And we're gonna see what God does in them, and for them, and to them in a very minimal, short amount of time. Jonah was told to preach to this group of people. They are the Ninevites. That's a city. It's an Assyrian city. And uh, just to catch those of you up who haven't been here for the series, Jonah is told to preach to the Ninevites, but the Assyrians are a bitter enemy of God's people, and they are evil in just about every way that you can think of evil. And so Jonah tries to flee from God. This part of the story you probably know. He's thrown overboard because a storm comes up, and it's the only way that the sailors can be saved. And a giant fish, a whale, swallows Jonah. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah gives this prayer to God saying basically, hey, thanks, that was nice of you to get me into this fish right here. And then this is what we encounter next. After Jonah has been swallowed by a whale, puked up on land, vomit all over him, probably skin changed colors from the acid inside this, the, the whale that had saved him. He's now on a beach. And then the next thing we read is Jonah 3, 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. I just want to point your attention to the words second time. And the reality that we see in the story of Jonah, in the person of Jonah, is that God is the God of second chances and sometimes third and sometimes four. And as our video gets to, I think, 17 chances. 
And a lot of times we think, this is how we picture the grace of God, like, well, I've, I've done that thing like four or five times now, and there's no way that God can give me another chance. He can't draw me back in again and, and accept me again and forgive me again and ask me again to do this thing because I've messed it up so many times. And I think second time here just shows us that with Jonah, we see that God is a God of second chances. I mean, Jonah literally tried to run from God. And some of us have done the same. God, I don't want that. I don't want to change that thing about my life. And we just try to get away from God. And eventually, some of you are probably in this point, you're thinking, wow, I, I would like to go back to God. I mean, I realize that being out here in the storms of life is no fun for me. But I mean, I've been running from God and there's no way he'll give me a second chance. But Jonah gets a second chance. And we're going to see in a moment, and we talked about this last week, that Jonah, or next week, not in a moment, that's a big moment, but next week we're going to see that Jonah is not as changed as we would like him to be. I mean, he's not, he's not like this perfect prophet all, all of a sudden. It's not like he is totally gracious or totally kind or totally on God's side. He, he's a, like a giant whiner in chapter four of the book of Jonah, like not even likable. I mean, he's not even a likable character at all. And, and we would look at, at Jonah in chapter four where we'll get to him and we'll be like, man, I, this guy, I, he shouldn't have got a second chance. And the reality is none of us should get a second chance, but the reality is God's engulfing grace will always give us a second chance if we will repent. And so God again declares to Jonas, he says, go to the great city of Nineveh, of Nineveh. Now this almost mirrors the very beginning of the book, Jonah's first chance, go to Nineveh. It's almost the same words repeated and again, I want to come back. I want to say Nineveh was very, very wicked. One author, and I said this in the first sermon in this series, one author said of Nineveh that it had taken up the sword more than any other group. I also read this, but archaeology confirms the Assyrians' wickedness. One guy whose name I'm not even going to try again was known to tear off the lips and hands of his victims. It's pretty wicked. Another guy was known to fillet, fillet his victims alive and he made great piles of their skulls. The Assyrians relished in their brutality. And here's what, what one author I found, and you haven't heard this before, said, the Assyrian army was notorious for its brutality and the Assyrians themselves made sure their enemies knew about the reputation. Their powerful bows, battering rams, and archers, archers on horseback were also effective. But mutilation of prisoners resettlement of whole populations and a general rejoicing and butchery of their victims was told to others. Assyrian kings bragged in stone about their atrocities. They made murals uh, in their throne rooms that are as detailed as the evening news. We see that there was a huge ramp the Assyrians had built against the walls and we see that the battering rams are pounding on the wooden gates. The defenders on the wall above sling stones and throw burning torches at the rams to try to burn them. Captured Judeans are brought to the king on his throne nearby. Other prisoners are skinned alive, stabbed, beheaded, impaled on poles. Their hands or feet or tongues chopped off and their eyes put out. The barefoot and malnourished survivors leave the city with all they still own slung over their shoulders and they will probably be marched to Nineveh on foot to become soldiers. This is what the murals from the time of Jonah 
on the Assyrian walls tell us that these people are bragging about. I mean, you come into an American home, we might put a picture of our pretty scenery, we might put a picture of our pretty uh, architecture, (laughs) but these people wanted you to know even in history, that they were the most brutal nation that had ever existed to this point. In 2 Kings 18, 17 through 19, 36, we see that the, the Israelites were really close to suffering the fate that was seen on the murals of being beaten, of being captured and put in prison and tortured and maybe sent off to fight for the Assyrian Government. I mean, this is like one of the greatest enemies of the Israelites at the time. And God says to Jonah, an Israelite, a Jew, get up and go. This is your second chance to go preach to the Ninevite people. Now, the other part is really telling. God calls them a great city. And we see that the greatness of Nineveh is stated three times in this book. And part of the greatness is explained in verse 3 where it says it took three days to go through it. And so Nineveh's area encompassed a pretty large amount of land. And so it's great in that regard. In 4.11 we see that the greatness is described because of the 120,000 people at least and the animals that are in it. And so it has a fairly big population, but this is even more important. The phrase used to describe Nineveh as great is a Hebrew idiom that actually could be said that more literally means Nineveh was a great city to God. It doesn't say like God called it a great city. It doesn't say that God thought it was a great city. It says that Nineveh was a great city to God. This means that Nineveh belonged to God. That God looked down at Nineveh, this enemy of his people, and still thought of them as his creation, as something that he loved, that he cared about, and that he wanted to engulf in grace. This is a huge deal. Because a lot of you think, yeah, I'm sure God loves everybody, but, but look at me. I'm not great to God. I can tell you this, if you don't fillet people alive, then you're a step up on the Ninevites. And God thinks that you are important and valuable and great. A lot of times we look at our lives and we think, I'm just so insignificant. I mean, if God is up there looking down on us, He might be thinking about those other people. He might love them. He might have died to save them even. But if he knew the way that I grew up, the way that my parents treated me, and the way that people have rejected me, and the things that I have done wrong, and the people that I hang out with, and just how unimportant and unloving I am, there's no way that he would call me great. But if he is calling the Ninevites great, if Nineveh is a great city to God, then you are a great person to God. You have value, you have worth, you have importance. And that means that God wants to offer you, pour out on you his grace and his mercy and his love and his acceptance and his forgiveness. This little idiom is a very, very big deal. 
It says that you, no matter what you have done, no matter how bad you think you are or unimportant or unlovable you think you are, you are a great person to God. Jonah 3, 3 through 4, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. More literally, rising, Jonah went, and that means that Jonah did it quickly. God said, get up right now, go, and this time, second chance. Jonah said, I don't want to be in a storm again. I don't want to be in the belly of a whale again. He learned his lesson, unlike Many of us, and Jonah gets up immediately and says, okay, I will go to Nineveh. The circumference of the city was only about seven miles, and so when it says it's a three days journey, it probably means the, uh, the rural areas surrounding it that were technically a part of it. And it's like in Wilsonville, the city line ends pretty quickly, but a lot of people that are out in those hills towards West Lynn or towards Sherwood are also going to say that they are in Wilsonville. And you'd go, not really, but, but they are in some way. And so Jonah's three-day journey would have been kind of the entire area of the city of Nineveh. And so the plan is that Jonah will go and, and he'll kind of go in and he'll talk to every single group, every single area, every single neighborhood in this city and proclaim God's word to them. Now, this is really, this is really fascinating. Jonah, in, in English, says 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's five words. Jonah goes at this sermon and he's like, look, you're not getting any illustrations. You're not getting any introduction. I'm here to do a job. I don't want to be doing the job. I don't like you people. And so here's the five words that I need to get to you. I mean, this is like the world's worst sermon. I mean, he doesn't talk about in the strictest sense, and I'll come back to this, like, hey, turn from your ways. There's no hook. There's no story. There's nothing to connect with your senses. I mean, he just says, look, God made me say this. Here it is. In Hebrew, let me try. I'm really bad. I'm, your pastor is an A student in Greek, so if I ever say anything about Greek, you can trust me pretty well. I'm a D minus student in Hebrew, so I'm just going to try to read it for fun, but it's like this. This is Jonah comes into the town saying something like this, probably said it in a way that sounded like Hebrew, but Ad Arbaim Yom Ninivei, you know what that one is, right? It's like when somebody's speaking Spanish and they say like the one word you know or your name, Ninivei Hafak. Ad bar arbaim yom Nineveh hafak is what he says. Big five words. That's it. That's Jonah's sermon. And we're about to read that these people are going to change everything because they believe God. I mean, their lives are going to be flipped upside down. They're going to worship the true God instead of false gods. They are going to change everything about themselves. And there's one thing that's really important. The last word there, and this is how minimal Jonah wanted to be in this sermon. I think it's, it's awesome. I, and not awesome. It's really, it just shows what Jonah's heart was like and how much he didn't want these people to change their ways and be saved by God. But the last word in his sermon it is a word that can be translated in a, in a bunch of different ways. It, it means judgment, turning upside down, a reversal, a change, a deposing of royalty, or a change of heart. 
And the two kind of key words for our understanding in this context is that it can mean both judgment or a change of heart. It's best translated overturn. And so the idea, the reason the word is translated all these ways, the idea is that Jonah is, is in one word, not in two words, saying, look, overturn or be overturned. Repent or be destroyed, in other words. He doesn't use two words. He doesn't use a sentence. He's like, I'll give him one word. It will mean both things. God will understand. You can overturn your life. You can repent. You can believe God, or you can be destroyed. Overturn or be overturned is what Jonah says to them. And listen to the response in verses five through nine. This is just incredible. The Ninevites believed God. That's a big deal in itself right there. Guy comes in, his skin is all messed up because he's been in an acidic stomach, a stomach with acid. He probably is like bleached white, most scholars think. He walks in, he looks super weird. He's Jewish, he's your enemy, you don't really like him. He comes in, drops five words on you, and, and you believe God. It's incredible, could have stopped there. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. That's either made of camel's hair or goat hair. It's a really itchy kind of material. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is, a pro- this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the, the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Isn't that crazy? I mean, everything is turned upside down. You see it in even like the smallest things. The people proclaimed the fast first, not the king. So that's backwards. That's upside down, especially in kind of the, the old world mindset. Your king tells you what to do. I mean, that's a big deal. The king leaves his throne and, and he leaves his kingly robes. He steps down off his throne. I mean, this is like upside down. A king doesn't do that. Everybody's trying to ascend to the throne. And this guy steps off of his throne. The king's proclamation uh, calls for everyone to urgently call on the real God, Yahweh, the God of the Jewish peoples, the, the God that we serve. I mean, this is, they got like a bunch of idols laying around and all of a sudden this guy steps off his throne and says, call on the real God. That's crazy. I mean, these people probably hated the God of the Jewish people until this moment right there. The Assyrian records, um, are nothing but a, a dry register of military campaigns. Uh, it's all about what they did to people. And, and here we see that, that they say, the king says, leave your evil ways. I mean, we think like, of course, we all want to leave our evil ways, not the Assyrians. They wanted to increase the evil ways so that people were more scared of them and, and they would scare people into submission other nations would lay down and die. They would submit. They would give up. They wouldn't put up a fight when the Assyrians marched into town. And this guy says, give up your evil ways. I mean, this is total and utter change because they believed God. Now think of this. I mean, this is, this is 
I hope you're believing me. I hope you're buying in. I hope you're getting part of the, the culture of the Assyrians and the Ninevites. I mean, this is the least likely people to be engulfed by the grace of God, to believe God when he calls them to repentance. I mean, they have, to put it in our words, no chance. I mean, they are, to put it in the way that I think, an unrealistic target market for salvation. I mean, think of this. Jeremiah, a very well-known Hebrew prophet, was arrested and imprisoned for proclaiming the judgment the punishment of the Israelites. So here's a Hebrew prophet talking to Hebrew people not far from the time of Jonah, saying, hey, God's going to destroy us. And they go, oh, let's beat you up and throw you in prison. Jonah, looking all funny, coming out of a whale, goes into the enemy camp, drops in five words. And these people believe God. Just a little while earlier, they were mocking and threatening The Jewish people are saying, your God can't stop us. We're going to destroy you. And now they believe God. The verb describes the Ninevites' repentance, and it's a good idea for what it means to believe God in our modern context to become a Christian. We believe in God. We believe that Jesus died on a cross so that our sins might be taken away. We declare it with our mouths. Romans 10.10 says that. We we say it. uh, We confess it. We make it known that we believe in God. And then we put on is the other verb that they use. We change how we live our lives because we, looking back at the New Testament, say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I want to do what my master, my savior, and my king wants me to do. And this is what the Ninevites do. They believe, they declare it, and then they put on this new set of actions for them, sackcloth, for them a fast, not eating any food at all. Here's even the crazier part. You might go, well, if you were a scholar, you you might say, well, this was very short-lived. It doesn't even make their historical records. The Ninevites didn't write anything down that made them look like they weren't doing something right, so that's not surprising at all that, that it's only in the Bible and it's not in the Assyrian records because they wrote like, we conquered these guys. They never lost a war, you know, in history's sake. You know, they always were the winners. But history, while it doesn't record it, shows us a couple of things that are really important. And the first is that the Ninevites have become a symbol for the Jews of what repentance is supposed to look like. In 200 AD, the Jewish people, who are enemies of the Assyrians, started to read the story of Jonah at the Day of Atonement to remind the other Jewish people, the people who worship the real God, what it means, what it looks like to repent, to believe in God, to step down from your throne, and to worship the real true God of the universe. The other part that we'll talk about more in just a second is that Assyrian Christians even today, and this is incredible, point to this moment in history and say that one of the reasons there are Assyrian Christians out there is because they can look back and say, man, God loved our people even when we were extremely wicked. And so this legacy has carried on forever and ever and ever. Even Jesus, 
talks about and points to Nineveh as this example of what we ought to be like when it comes to Christianity. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying for those of you who are rejecting Christianity, who are saying, hey, I don't believe that. He's saying, look, these people are going to shame you in eternity because you have the very words of Jesus and they had five measly minimal words in a terrible sermon by a Hebrew prophet and they chose to believe God. If you pick up the Bible and you start to read the words of Jesus and you reject it, then I will be shocked. But most people, most people will reject it before they even look at it. They'll say, well, I heard something bad about that. Jesus, I'm to this, I'm to that. I'm not going to analyze and see just how amazing the preaching of Jesus was. And when we come to our worry series in just a few weeks, uh, it's a series that I have taught before. I know it's cheating as a pastor. I'm always supposed to do new stuff. But it's a series that is just important to my heart and has been valuable to the groups I've taught it to before. And you are going to be blown away in how like seven verses, Jesus gives us these tips that can actually help us to live a worry-free life. And it's tips that people in books are still stealing today. Go pick up a self-help book and read about worry and then compare it to what Jesus said in like seven verses. And you'll be like, man, they stole all this. And what Jesus is saying is, look, you have my word, you should believe in me. But the Ninevites only had five terrible words and a very bad sermon, a sermon that would get me fired if I did it every week. And they chose to believe God. And it shows us that nobody is too far from the grace of God. Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is one of the two key books or key verses in this book. I said last week that the end of Jonah chapter two, salvation is from the Lord is one of the key books. This is probably the second key verse in our book here in Jonah in this story that is Jonah. And it's just to say these people repented and, and God relented. One author said it this way, turning in repentance leads to, to turning of God with compassion. And that is always the case. No matter how many things you've done wrong, no matter how bad you've been, even if you've been a Christian a long time and you're thinking about the sin you committed earlier this week, this story suggests, this story declares that if you will repent, and we've talked about this, repentance is a word that means to change your mind, to say, I did something wrong. I get that, God. In the moment, I rationalized and I said, yeah, I should have done it. I, should, I can do this. God won't care that much. But to say, God, I know I did something you didn't want me to do and I'm gonna try not to do it, then God will turn to you with compassion. I mean, these people have very limited knowledge. They don't even really understand God and his ways and they don't know all the theology and they don't know all the answers. They just go, well, we know that the Jewish people sometimes put on sackcloth. That wasn't even a Syrian thing to do. They're like, well, we've heard that over there in that country, this is something that they do and sometimes they fast when they've been disobedient to God. So we'll do it. And God pours out his compassion on them. He relents. And it's a word that is always connected to emotional 
pain. It can mean comfort or regret in other contexts, not our context. And uh, with human beings, it means that they changed their minds. It's often translated that way. For our purposes, uh, the, the translation relent is, is important. And, and, and I think we should say it this way. God's character and promises do not change. But God changes his plans of action according to his unchanging purposes and promises. James 1.17 declares that God does not change his mind, and that is true. God will never change his character. God will never change the promises that he has made. But he does, often in the Bible, change his course of action to align with the things that he has promised, with the things that he has predicted, with the things that, that are part of his nature. And this is what the story is about. These people repent, and God relents, even though they, of all people, were the least likely to accept the grace of God. Verse 10 is another poem, a chiastic form of literature. And I said last week, that's like a, a kind of puts bookends on something. It's a form of poetry where you have uh, a point and then another point and then points on the other side of it that align with those two points. So you'd have point A, point B, point B, point A, like that, if that makes sense to you. And here it doesn't come out in English very well, but the idea is they turned, so God turned from the ways of destruction. They returned from their evil, is what it says, and God turned from his destroying them, from his punishment in their lives. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We look at certain people and we say, you're two, 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 two. And the Ninevites say, yeah, we were two, 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 two everything. Too wicked, too much an enemy of God. We've done too many bad things. But God wanted us to be saved. He wanted to relent of his punishment. And all it took was our repentance. Ezekiel 18, 32, in case you think, as some people do, like God is really nice in the New Testament after Jesus, but he was so mean in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 18, 32, that's before Jesus, this was written. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Repent and live. Here's what you need to know. The Assyrians look on the outside like they are just so far from God, like there is no chance. But here's what you need to know. Assyria was actually in a time of crisis. Their sense of well-being as a nation, as a country, was in jeopardy. Uh, they didn't feel very good about the way the country was going. Uh, they had experienced famines in recent history before Jonah. They had experienced enemy attacks, and there was internal revolts taking place. There was a full eclipse in 763 B.C., not long before Jonah shows up on the scene. And they would have taken that very superstitiously and said, what does this mean? What are the gods trying to teach us? And they had a, a culture that thought that if they made one of their false gods angry, then their false gods were going to be pretty mad at them and, and was going to bring famine and was going to bring war and internal conflict and strife. And so they would have been searching their oracles for a reason for the things that they were suffering, for the things that they were going through, seeking, has our gods, have our gods ever said anything about this? Is there anything in our history? Have we done anything wrong? And then Jonah shows up on the scene, says five words, and they believe the true and living God of the universe. 
And here's what you need to know. While it may look on the outside like some people are so, 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 so far away, the reality is every person that is apart from Jesus, every person who is not a Christian has internal struggles and difficulties and hurts and, and guilt that they are looking for an answer for. If you're not a Christian and you're listening right now, I know it's true for you. I know, and you can try to push it down. You can say, this guy doesn't know me, doesn't know me well enough. But the, but the reality is we know if we were alone and nobody was around and you could put down your pride, you, you would be able to say, hopefully in honesty, yeah, I've done some pretty bad things. I've done some things that I regret. I've hurt some family members and some friends. I've turned my back on some people and I feel guilt. And there's no way I can ever get rid of that guilt. And you would say, yeah, I'm scared. I'm scared about what the future holds. I'm scared about what might come next in my life. I'm scared about a million things. I'm worried all the time. Or you might say, man, yeah, I know that this lifestyle, I try to make it look cool, but, but I just, I don't, it's not that fun. And it leaves me with consequence after consequence after consequence. And, and I just, I'm always creating more consequences for myself because I don't have the moral compass I want. And this is all I know is doing the things that just feel good to me. And I just encourage you not to push those things down and try to forget about them. But seek an answer for them. Seek forgiveness. Seek joy. Seek peace that transcends all understanding. Seek a moral compass that allows you to live your life differently and better in a way that doesn't produce consequence after consequence. And I'll tell you, if you seek, you will find it only in one place, and that is Jesus. And while you may want to declare, I'm to this, or I'm to that, or I'm to this, if you will just stop and look at the reality of your soul, then you may, in just a split second, Choose to repent. Say, Jesus, I understand that you are the only way that I can be saved and that I can have joy and that I can look forward to life after death. And I'll tell you this, no matter what you've done, God will relent. God will take you in as his own. He will make you his child. He will give you forgiveness. He will change your life for the better inside and outside. And there are some here, some listening, that this is what you need you need to realize that you are not too far away. And today you need to make a decision to repent and become a Christian so that God might relent in your life. But here's the other group in this room right now. The other group in this room are Christians. And there's two, two things that you as Christians need to take from this. Either one, stop fretting about old sins. I know that in our congregation, this is a struggle. And I tried last week to say it pretty clearly. You don't have to feel sorry about the things you've done for the rest of your life. You need to repent. You need to do something different. And you need to remember that God loves you and he cares about you and he's going to be quick to forgive you. But the Ninevites show us this. I mean, man, they, and Jonah with his second chance shows us that, that you don't have to sit around for the rest of your life thinking, man, I messed up, I messed up, I messed up, I messed up. God responds to your repentance with compassion, with an emotion that suggests, man, I love you and this is what I wanted. 
Not you to feel sorry for the rest of your life. I wanted you to come back to the right and proper relationship with me, even if you're like a Ninevite. Even if you've done a million sins since becoming a Christian, God just wants you to turn from them and go towards him and he will accept you. I just want to repeat and reiterate and say again, when we sin, it sometimes causes us to sin again because we sit around feeling sorry and guilt and we think, well, God doesn't like me anymore, so I might as well do something else bad. And this story does not allow for that. So stop feeling guilty for something that you did, even if it was yesterday. There's no time limit, man. I mean, it's like, you don't need to, ah, I did that like three days. I think it's like three days for me. When I do something, I'll just, me inside of me, and I'm not, I'm not the most like, I feel guilty person ever. I'm pretty quick to forgive myself. Um, But it's like, you know, yeah, shouldn't have done that, but time to move on. I'm a moving on kind of guy. I've told you this. Like I sit in church and I'm about to preach a sermon and I'm thinking like, oh, this is a great idea for the next sermon series. I'm always, I'm a forward thinking individual, sometimes to a fault. But but some of you, it's like like three days is when I'm feeling guilty. Like after, I don't know why, I never say it out loud. Like if I just feel kind of guilty about it for a few days, then then God will have compassion and then we can get back to having a right relationship no once you repent god relents of his anger so repent and move on move forward but here's the other part and it's more to the point of this passage some of us as i've said need to stop limiting who god can or even wants to save We need to stop asking who might repent and start asking to whom you might be sent. Isn't that the question? We go, who might repent? Who might come to Jesus? Who might accept the gift of salvation? Who will be nice to me when I tell them about me being a Christian or uh, about how they can be saved? Who might repent? But the question that Jonah was asking The question more that we should be asking is, to whom has God sent me? Stop asking who might repent and start asking to whom you have been sent. I mean, that is what we should be asking. We shouldn't be saying, well, kind of seems like God wants me to talk to this person about Christianity, but they, I mean, they're pretty smart. I won't have an answer for them. Or, ooh, they're pretty bad. I don't know if I want them coming to our church. Sometimes I think that about people as the pastor. I hope they stay away. But you think it too. Like, man, if they become a Christian, then there's all this baggage, and then I'm going to have to help them move forward in their Christian faith, and uh, they're probably not going to accept it anyway. Oh, man, that person, they have, they have everything going for them. Like, their lives are figured out, and there's no way that this God thing can, can squeeze in here. And, and so... Seems like I should talk to them, but nah, they're probably not going to repent. They're probably not going to become a Christian. That is the wrong question, and it is the question that will keep our church from leading people to Jesus in groves, from having baptisms every Sunday. It is the question that I think plagues much of the expansion, the growth of of Christianity in our country today because we go, well, the moral fabric of our nation has changed and people don't really look like Christians anymore. You know, like they don't have the same morality as us. They don't seem like us. They don't really fit in in the church. And so we never, we never 
think we're sent to those people because they probably won't repent. And the Ninevites, they show us. It doesn't matter. God doesn't need you to figure out the people who are really close to the gospel. He needs you to tell the people about Jesus that he sends you to. And he declares Jesus, the very last words he says is going into the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, find certain people groups, find people that might repent, have a great plan and go through these steps. What he says is while you're going into the world, while you're going into your jobs, while you're going into the, to your families, while you're going into your schools, remember to be looking for people that I call you to share the gospel with. And in some ways, it's every person that's in front of you. But I think God sometimes specifically tells us to talk to people. And here's what we're going to do. We have these pamphlets. And hopefully you've been praying about who God wants you to put down. The 10 people that you just feel like God is calling you to. That you are being sent to. To, to pray for to share the gospel with, to have important interactions with, even if it's just building relationships so that someday you might say, hey, Jesus loves you. This is what Jesus did in my life. And I'm asking that you fill it out this week and that you don't fill it out based on who's realistic, but you fill it out based on who you believe God is calling you to. And what we're gonna do next Sunday is in some way, shape, or form, it's still being discussed. We're going to put those names on something that is going to come to our church every week. And when we have our prayer meetings out on the property, which is actually September 3rd, not this Wednesday, we will pray over these names. And when we come to church on Sunday mornings and we're setting up, we say a prayer, we're gonna pray, not by everyone by name, but we will pray over this board that God would change the hearts of these people. And I believe that if we were a church that stops asking who might repent, because that's nobody, right? I mean, you shouldn't have repented. You were going about your life. This is how you became a Christian. You were going about your life. You were living for yourself. You were living selfishly. You were committing sins. And then somebody said, hey, you should become a Christian. And you said, yes, I should. It wasn't because you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of getting there and I'm kind of figuring things out and I kind of got a plan and I'll, I'll become a Christian at this age. No, somebody said something. I was four years old. Four-year-olds can't understand that. Four-year-olds can't become Christians. I mean, I was a really smart four-year-old, but, but you know, like, I mean, he's a four-year-old. He's playing with toys. He's focused on baseball and this is like life for him. Like baseball, that was my life and basketball. That was, that was what I cared about. And we're not even a church and I'm not in children's church. We're listening to a tape for crying out loud. I'm with my great-grandmother listening to a tape in a family room. And the guy says, become a Christian so you don't have to go to hell. Not very children friendly, is it? And then you think, this is how the story went. My great grandma turns to me and says, hey, Chad, would you like to pray the sinner's prayer and become a Christian? Nope. I go, hey, I want to do it. That's not likely. I mean, there is nothing that sets that up. There's nothing that makes that like so that it should have happened. And it changed my life forever. 
And you can look at people and go, yeah, too young. I mean, they're just a kid. They're not going to understand. Maybe the babies we have probably won't understand it. But who knows after this sermon, right? I mean, and you can look at people and say, you're too addicted or you're too rich or you're too young or you're too old or you're too much not like us and you won't fit in in our church. And we're never going to reach anybody because nobody, 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 nobody should be engulfed by God's grace. But that's what makes his engulfing grace so ridiculously amazing is that every person is just repentance away from it. Every person is just one moment in time where they say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the savior of the world who died for the sins of the world and I give my life to him away from being engulfed by the grace of God. You were an enemy. That's what the Bible tells us. You were an enemy of God until the moment when you repented and God relented. And so if you were a Christian and you're sitting in front of me, we can, we can be defeatist, we can, we can have a negative attitude, we can sit around looking for people that, that might repent, or we can start asking, who has God sent me to? And when we start asking that question, that's when we're gonna start seeing people give their lives to Jesus. And we'll hear stories. I mean, we will hear stories where people go, wow, that day you brought up Christianity, you had no idea what I was going through. Everything looked normal, but I had just got a phone call. I had just had a conversation. This had just happened to me. I had just heard. You told me how I could have joy and how I could get through those moments. And it changed everything. Or man, I, 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 I was looking for an answer for my guilt. I just, there was this thing and I couldn't get over it. And then you said, man, you know, the reason I love being a Christian is because, because I have a place, an outlet for the things that I do wrong. And I have terrible regrets, but I feel forgiven. And when you said that, I knew it's exactly what I needed. I'm telling you, the only way, and then, I believe this. Churches that sit around going, who might, who might, who might? They never reach anybody because nobody might. Nobody. Everybody is an enemy to God that's not a Christian. But all it takes is one moment of repentance and their lives can be changed forever. So this week, this is your homework and I'll just end with this. If you haven't already, start praying. Say, God, who are you sending me to? I know there's an infinite world out there for all intents and purposes. I mean, there's a, you, you hopefully know, uh, part of it is knowing non-Christians that's in our book, but hopefully you know more than 10 people that aren't Christians that have not given their lives to Jesus, who haven't repented. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, who do you believe that God is sending you to? Who do you believe that God wants you to engage in a deeper level relationship so that you can say, Jesus loves you. He died for you. Put it down in the next week via a board or paint or marker or something. We are going to, we are going to put these names on a list and we are going together start to remember that they are just a moment away, a moment away from an eternity in heaven, an eternity of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we can be the instrument like Jonah, that God uses, even if we say five words that make no sense. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your just ridiculously amazing grace. It's not something that, that we can fully understand. And God is, we'll see next week. I mean, Jonah, you know, 
probably sitting up there in heaven with you right now, but he didn't get it, even in the midst of this story that's written about him in your word. Um, but Lord, we get glimpses of it. And, and, and this, this part of the story of Jonah, the Ninevites, God, it's such a beautiful reminder that nobody is an unrealistic goal. I shouldn't say goal. Nobody is an unrealistic candidate, Lord, for your salvation. And Lord, we recognize, and I just want to declare that, that God, we understand who are Christians in this room, that nobody is unrealistic because we were all unrealistic. None of us deserved your salvation. None of us did anything to warrant you forgiving us, God. It was just your power and your mercy and your grace that all were demonstrated in the death of your son that allowed for those of us who have experienced the forgiveness and the grace of Christianity to come to it, God. And Lord, your word declares that that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And we know, Lord, that everybody that we put on this list is going to come to salvation because of your universal kindness, Lord, that calls all sinners through your word, through your spirit, through the magnetic grace that we as demonstrated in the cross that calls all people to salvation, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not limit you. If, if people are in front of me and they are not Christians, God, um, I just would ask, God, that, that they would not in their hearts anymore say I'm to this or to that and for those of us who are Christians I pray that we would never say they're to this or that but instead God we we would just ask God do you want me to share the gospel do you want me to tell them about your love and if the answer is yes that we would be obedient and if at first we say no we we ask for a second chance Lord Sometimes a third chance and a fourth chance. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. It's so incredible. I'm just going to ask as you still have your eyes closed and your heads down. If you fall into one of these two categories today, I would love to know. And I'd love to be able to pray about uh, for you individually. And, and so if you're a person today that has said, I'm to this or to that. And this morning, you just want to put that aside and either accept Jesus or your Savior or even just say, okay, I'm opening myself to the idea that I'm going to ask in a minute. And, and when I ask, will you put your hands up? And, and, and for the rest of you, if, if you're a person that's a Christian that is, that is declared and you know it, just be honest with yourself. I've, I've thought it was unrealistic for this family member or that person or this coworker to give themselves to Jesus to repent, then, then I'm gonna ask that you'll put your hand up too so that I can specifically pray that you will join me. Uh, this is, I'm gonna put my hand up this morning, uh, that you will join me in having a change of heart that, that says not who's close to repentance, but who, who is it that I have been called by God to talk to. And so right now, if you fall into one of those two categories, will you put your hand up with me? Thank you love seeing all those hands. Jesus, for those who have put their hands up, I just pray one more time that no matter what category they fall into, they would understand that your engulfing grace 
is open to everyone, God, no matter what political party, no matter what economics uh, situation they are in, no matter what they have done wrong, no matter who their friends are, Lord, no matter how bad they have been, no matter how little they've thought about you, God, they are not too far. Nobody is too far from your grace. Remind us of that on a daily basis, not on a weekly basis, not just when we come to church, but every single day remind us, God, of how ridiculously amazing your grace is. Ask these things in your name. Amen.